Please stand for the reading of God's word. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, and verses 12 through 14. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army, armor comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is, the, is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. Now skipping down to verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'd like to begin with a... Uh obscure reading from a book, it's called The Witch, the Lion, and the Wardrobe. <laughs> Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan? said Mr. Beaver. Why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white witch queen, the white queen all right. All right. She won't, she won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no. He'll put all to rights. You'll understand when you see him. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without her knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's right, son of Adam and son of Adam, and so you shall. I love that picture of a God who isn't safe, but is good. And uh, we are going through a series this summer on the Minor Prophets, who present us with a God who isn't safe, uh, but he is good. In fact, a God who is pure goodness. 
Uh, and that means that his goodness loves all things that are good. This God that we believe in, he loves all that is good. He loves beauty. He loves justice. He loves humility, compassion, creativity, righteousness. He loves all things good. Uh, but as pure goodness, he also opposes things that violate and threaten what is good, like greed and lust and pride and injustice and unrighteous anger. And what that means is uh, his goodness is good news because there's a lot in this world, right, that needs opposing. There's a lot in this world that needs opposing. And it means his goodness is scary news because there's lots in us that needs to be dealt with as well. And this is, this is the God that we see throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Minor Prophets, this God who is good. And today we're looking at the, the prophet Joel. And Joel introduces us to a concept known as the Day of the Lord. And he didn't invent it. Other prophets said it before him, but we're going to look at it through Joel's eyes today. And the Day of the Lord is a day when the manifest goodness of God is actually made known in the world. Okay? Okay. What that means is where God comes and he judges evil. He does what Mr. Beaver says, Aslan, he sets all things right. Uh, he judges and opposes what is evil and he rewards and has mercy for all that is good and righteous and faithful. It's a day of judgment and it's a day of salvation. And what's interesting is if you read the prophets, you'll, you'll find out that this day of the Lord is not just a single day, but there are actual multiple events that reveal God's pure goodness in the world. So let me just give you a little picture here. A lot, of, a lot of background this morning. So a lot of the prophets, they'll be looking out into their day, and there's an event, I'll call it Day of the Lord 1.0. And it's coming. It might be five years from their time. And, they, and they're talking about it to the people of their time. But then beyond that event, there's some other event that may come hundreds of years later. I'll call it Day of the Lord 2.0. Uh, and then, of course, in the end, there is one final event that's going to happen in human history, which we'd call the Day of the Lord with a capital D, D-Day, the return of the king, when God sends his son, the king, Jesus, again, to put all things right. Okay? And all these smaller days of the Lord's are just foreshadows. They're glimpses. They're, they're hints of, of the, the cosmic moment where God's pure goodness will be poured out on this world in judgment and in salvation. And what is tricky about reading prophets is oftentimes they're looking ahead and it's hard, it's hard to know which one of these they're talking about. It's like they all kind of blend together. Is he talking about like the end of time? Is he talking about something's gonna happen in three years or something's gonna happen in a couple hundred years? And sometimes it's kind of like, well, they're all sort of of the same kind of thing. And so, Yes, he's talking about all of them all, all, all the time. If you want to know an example of this, just watch Jesus, who was a prophet. And when Jesus is walking away from the temple in Israel, his disciples say, gosh, this is a beautiful temple. And he says, guess what? All of these stones are going to be torn down. And they ask, when's this going to happen? What's going to be the sign of this? And he goes on to talk to them about what's going to happen about 40 years later when that temple is going to be destroyed. But if you know the passage, he also starts talking about things that seem a lot bigger than a temple being destroyed. It's like the end of the world. And you're like, what are, you, what are we talking about? Are we talking about AD 70? Are we talking about the second coming? Or is it all kind of mixed up in there? And it's like, yeah, that's kind of how the prophets think. Because it's all getting at God moving in this world, his goodness coming with judgment and salvation. And we're going to see this pattern in Joel's little letter. So that was all by way of introduction. 
A little context for Joel. We know almost nothing about Joel. Um, look back to, go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Um, I'll tell you all that I know about Joel. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. That's all I know about Joel. He was the son of Pethuel. And if you want to know who Pethuel is, I can tell you with confidence that he was the father of Joel. That's about all I can tell you. Uh, we don't know exactly when he was writing. We think probably 6th century BC to the southern kingdom. We don't know the specific context, but we know the general context. And the general context is years and years of unfaithfulness on the part of God's people. Of not, yeah, sounds familiar? Is that what you said? Yes, sounds familiar. This is going to be a repeated theme in the prophets and in the history of the world. Um, so um, God had entered into a covenant, and for centuries now, Israel had been unfaithful to this covenant. And, and what you need to know this morning is um, God entered, entered a very specific covenant with Israel. It's a little different than the covenant with us today. There were very specific stipulations and consequences in that covenant, okay? Let me just remind you, in Deuteronomy, God says, hey, guys, here's how this works. This is for him and Israel. Obey me, and I will bless you circumstantially. Disobey me and you will get cursed circumstantially. You will be punished circumstantially. So let me read you these. This is the end of Deuteronomy. All these blessings will come on you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds and the lambs of your flocks. You're gonna obey me. It will go well with you as a nation, okay? as a people, circumstantially. This was part of the covenant. And the opposite was true. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, all these curses will come on you. You'll be cursed in the city and cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be cursed. Um, pay attention to this one right here. It's going to come up. Uh, you will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little because locusts will devour it. Swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. And then notice this one too. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, like an eagle swooping down. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. Okay? Very specific covenant. Obey me, it'll go well. Disobey me, it will not. Okay, that's a little different than the covenant we're in right now. So, like, we don't apply this sort of obedience leads to blessing, disobedience leads to curses, because we're in a different covenant. So it's important to just know, like, God was very specific with them, and we're going to see some of the covenant stipulations playing out in the book of Joel, all right? But we don't, we don't try to bring these to our moment today as a nation or as a people. So that's something to think about as we go through the minor prophets. All right, so... Um, that's a lot of intro. Um, I want to just give you a, a 15 minute overview of the book of Joel, okay? So see if you can walk through this with me and you're going to see this day of the Lord and this pattern repeated and we see the goodness of God coming at his people in judgment and in mercy, all right? And coming into the world in judgment and in mercy. And what I want you to do this morning is as much as you can, use your imaginations, okay? The prophets uh, use a lot of imagery, and so I want you to try to picture what is being described. Enter into it. This is supposed to be not just thought about rationally, but like explored in the imagination. All right? So you ready for 15 minutes? Over you? Okay, here we go. Um, so chapter one, an event has actually just happened, or it happened in recent times, that Joel wants to comment on. And that event is this, uh, a locust swarm has swept through the land and devastated the crops. So here's a, a picture of chapter one, okay? Let me read you parts of chapter one. Look at verse two of chapter one. Hear this, you elders, 
Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and let their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Okay, so a big locust swarm has come through and decimated the land. Okay, look at verse 7. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Look at verse 10. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Okay, so devastation in the land by this locust plague. It's taken place recently. And... Um, What's really interesting is this is kind of an ironic twist on what God did in the past. Remember when they were in Egypt, right? God brought a locust plague on their enemies, right? In Egypt to rescue them. And now in an ironic twist, that same plague is being directed at his people because of their unfaithfulness. And as he promised it would be, I was part of the covenant stipulation. If you disobey me again and again and again, this is what's going to happen. And now it's happening, okay? And so the call in the second half of chapter one is to repentance and mourning for the people's disobedience and what's taken place in the land. So look at verse 13. Put on sackcloth. Okay, I'm kind of wearing, this is my closest thing. I got a black shirt on today. Uh, you priests and mourn, wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast, right? Call a sacred assembly, summon elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. God has brought this on us just as he promised he would, and we ought to call out in confession. And the chapter ends by Joel offering his own prayer of confession. Look at verse 19, end of chapter 1. To you, Lord, I call, for fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames and burned up all the trees of the field, even the wild animals plant for you, the streams of, plant for you, the streams of water have dried up and fires devoured the pastures in the wilderness. All right? So this, is, this has happened. Call out and repent and confess. You'll notice in verse 15, this is the first reference to this idea of the day of the Lord. Alas, this is verse 15, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Okay, chapter one. Chapter two, you're gonna see that same pattern repeated, but now with an event that is about to take place in the near future, okay? And here's what's happening. Another swarm is coming into the land, this time not a swarm of locusts, but a, a swarm of an army that's coming from the north, right? So let me read you parts of chapter two. This is what we already had, what Phyllis read to us. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble. Here's that phrase. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness like dawn spreading out across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes such as never was in ancient times nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. I really, listen to this image. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Wow. Nothing escapes them. 
So this swarm, this swarm of, of an army now is going to come on them. Uh, I assume contextually this is probably the Babylonians that are going to come and conquer uh, Jerusalem, destroy the temple. That's my assumption of what this is. Um, but there's a really interesting surprise. Look at verse 11. This may have been an unexpected moment. The Lord thunders at the head of his mighty, uh, head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. Who's in charge of this army that's coming against God's people? God, oh my goodness. <laughs> okay, again, that is a, we could call it an ironic twist for Israel because God had always said when they enter the land, I will lead your armies, right? I will go before you. I will, I will destroy the peoples and, and send out the peoples in the land and, and place you in the land. And now, in a twist of fate, God is actually leading the armies against Israel just as he promised he would in his covenant. If you guys continue to disobey me, I will bring armies who will take you and carry you off into exile. Okay? So this is like day of the Lord 2.0, and now the stakes are even higher. And so the second half of, of chapter 2, like chapter 1, is again a call for repentance. And I let, now, he, now he starts to get a little bit more specific about re, what repentance can look like. So look at verse 12. This is beautiful, beautiful language about repentance. Even now, declares the Lord. I love that, right? This army is coming. It's like, it's as good as done. And then God says, yet even now, there's always time. I, I'm a God who longs for his people to repent, I'm just waiting. It's not, if you repent, I'll, I, will, I will remove what I've threatened. And he constantly says this to Israel. Even now, and I love this, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and, and mourning. And second half, verse 13, return to the Lord your God. What is repentance? What is that? It's a, sort of a spiritual word. It's a, just a turning. It's a returning to God. Like the prodigal son, <laughs> who left, went away from his, his, his God, and then said, what am I doing? Came to his senses, I should go home to my father. And that's really the heart of, of repentance. Whenever we're caught up in some sin or some posture that is against God, it, it is, it's as simple and as radical <laughs> as just return. Turn to God, and you will find not a judge waiting to condemn you. You will find a father waiting to embrace you. You run away from him, you will experience him as judge. You turn towards him, and he is there as a father waiting for you, right? Even now, verse 12, return to me with all your heart, and then I love this image, verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. Okay, that's a classic prophetic moment right there. God's saying, I, I don't want you to take clothes and tear them as a sign of confession. I want you to tear your hearts. I want you to take that inner part of you, and I want you to experience a tearing in there. I want you to return with all your heart. I'm not looking for outward displays of religious whatever. I don't care about that. I want your hearts. I want your hearts to be broken by your sin. I want your hearts to experience conviction. So from your heart, not just from your actions, you return to me. Rend your heart and not your garments. Verse 13, return to the Lord your God. And then here is the covenant character of Yahweh. For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, 
and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Okay? This is who God has revealed himself as. I am slow to anger. I don't get angry fast. I'm very patient, right? I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. I'm compassionate. This is at the very core of who I am. I, have, I, I, I find no joy in punishing and disciplining my people. This is not where my heart longs to take them. I long to be with my people. And so the minute my people will return to me, this is the heart they're going to find from their father. So the call is for Israel in that day. This disaster's coming. Day of the Lord's coming. But even now, don't forget who he is. He loves you. He longs to show mercy to you. So repent and return to your Lord. Okay, so chapter one, first half of chapter two, you see that theme repeated. Judgment, but repentance. Judgment, but repentance and mercy if you repent. All right, turn with me. How are we doing so far? You doing all right? Okay, good. Um, turn with me to chapter two, verse 18. So this is kind of the turning point of Joel. It all hinges on this verse, 18. Then the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Okay, you get to see here the heart of Yahweh who cares about this land, that, right, his promised land for his people, and even more than that, who cares for his people. And he's gonna act now in this world. His goodness is gonna manifest itself in this world on behalf of his people. Four things God is going to do because of his, his zealous love for his people that we see in the rest of the book. I'll just kind of mention them to you. First, um, verse 18 through 27, chapter two, uh, he is going to restore the land from the locust plague. So I'll give you a nice restore. This is actually a vineyard in Israel, as far as I can tell. So that's what Google told me at least. Um, but he's gonna restore the land from what the locusts did. Look at verse 19 of chapter two. The Lord replied to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine and olive oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn in the nations. Look at verse 23. Be glad, people of Zion. Rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains because he's faithful. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. And then, uh, one of the most famous verses in Joel, uh, I bet this verse has, has spoken to many of you in your, in your years, verse 25. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. The great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full. Right? I will repay you. I will restore uh, the years the locusts have eaten. And some of you have had that, that spoken over you, I think, by God, where you went through a really hard season, and God said, I'm going rest to restore um, what, has, what has taken place. So God's going to restore the land. But second, and more importantly, God has to restore this people Right? He doesn't just have to restore the land of Israel. He needs to restore the people of Israel. And here's the great question. How on earth do you restore a group of people that have been wayward for centuries, who have a track record, right? Like a long track record of not being able to stay faithful to the covenant. What do you do? 
How do you fix that problem? God's answer, there's only one way to fix that problem. It is his own spirit poured out on his people. Look at verse 28. Again, very famous quote or line from Joel. And afterward, oh, I think I have an image for this too. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. Uh, Verse 32, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How do I heal a wayward people who don't have what it takes inside of them to be consistently faithful to my covenant? Well, I have to give them something outside of them. But I have to put that something inside of them. And that is my spirit. My very good and holy and righteous presence. Working within them, doing in them things that they clearly can't do for themselves. And what Joel focuses on is what I would call the democratization of the spirit in this passage. Like in the Old Testament, the spirit would come on particular people at particular moments, usually prophets or priests in moments where, you know, they needed to step up or have, uh, you know, displays of power, whatever. But Joel is prophesying when God, he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to get everybody my spirit, any kind of person from the the highest high to the lowest. Like he mentions female servants in that day, that would be like the lowest on the socioeconomic, right? Female servants. I mean, ancient society, everybody, kids, adults, you name it. Everyone of my, every kind of person will receive uh, my spirit and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It'll be a time of, of forgiveness, refreshment, and salvation. All because of what I will put in their hearts. And of course, Peter quotes from this at Pentecost. When people ask, what on earth is going on with these people right now? He says, this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. The Spirit on God's people. Changing them from the inside out. So I will restore the land. I will restore my people. And then it goes on. We're almost done with Joel. Chapter 3. And he goes after what kind of now starts to feel like the day of the Lord. Like the capital D. Like the end of time. And the first half of the chapter says, I'm going to eventually deal with all the corrupt and unjust nations. There will be a time where I will come and deal with them once and for all. And it's in this valley of decision. Let me read to you part of this wild stuff here. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 1. In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and, Israel and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat means Jehovah judges. Okay? There I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. Okay, the unjust nations will come into this valley and we're going to have a reckoning. There's going to be some splaining to do, God says. Look at verse 12. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come trample the grapes for the winepress is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. It's very Revelation-esque language here. 
multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord, capital D, is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars will no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Okay? Cosmic gathering of the nations, the valley of decision for God to put all things right, finally. And this would be good news to people who have experienced injustice their whole lives. Yahweh coming making all things right in judgment. And then Joel ends with this picture of, I'd call it eschatological renewal, the renewal of all things. And I would say new heavens, new earth. Since I started with Narnia, I'll end with Narnia. There you go. Verse 17, then you will know that I, the Lord God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. Uh, A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. Okay, I could go on. But this picture of of cosmic renewal, uh, the land flourishing as God originally intended, almost like a a second Eden um, that is coming. The day of the Lord bringing judgment and bringing salvation and the renewal of all things. Thus ends the book of Joel. Right? Yes. Are you happy that it's over or are you happy for the journey? So that's a lot to take in, right? I hope that was kind of condensed enough. But I wanted you to experience um, a book in its entirety. And I want to leave you with uh, two simple thoughts. One is just to reiterate again who our God is, and the other is to remind us of who we are invited, called to be as God's people. And I'll just say about God, this thing I said at the beginning, our God is a God who is pure goodness. He is not safe, but he is good. And because he is pure goodness, that means he has to be a God of both judgment and a God of mercy. And that's what we see throughout scripture, a God who is a God of judgment, who calls out evil, who opposes it, who in his goodness fights against it, who doesn't want it to stand, but wants to uh, break it and redeem it. And a God who loves goodness and loves humility and kindness and justice and creativity, all all that is right and good. Um, He's a God of judgment, but he's also a God of mercy who's longing to show compassion on anybody who will choose to return to him, just acknowledge their brokenness and return to him. And this judgment and this mercy, I wanna just suggest are both expressions of his goodness, okay? And I have a particular passion for this this theme because I look in, in the church today and I feel like we're having a hard time holding together this very robust view of God who can be all of these things all at once. And so we want them to be either one or the other. And so you've got kind of the old school religious version where God is kind of this God of justice and he's always angry at sin and he's always, you know, we're always needing to keep ourselves away from certain people and keep ourselves out of certain behaviors because God is this God of anger and justice, right? That's sort of the old school version. And then you have a newer school version that, which is God who has just kind of gotten really soft in his old age, right? And he's, he he wouldn't judge anybody. He would never, people judge themselves by their actions, but God would never actually 
actually execute judgment. And I want to say to both of those, no, he's not that and he's not that. God is good. <laughs> and this is what goodness does. It opposes evil uh, and it rejoices in all that is good. And so that is how God has to be. And all you have to do is pick up this book and from Genesis to Revelation, you will recognize this is a story of judgment and salvation, of justice and mercy. And if you pick up the four gospels and look at God incarnate in Jesus Christ, you will find him to be a man who is precisely this kind of man. He is so good. And as such, he is a person of justice and judgment and a person of mercy. You cannot read two consecutive chapters of any of the four gospels. Okay, try it. Two consecutive chapters and pick up anywhere you want, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read two chapters in a row, you will for sure find elements of judgment and you will find elements of mercy in this man's ministry because he is good. Amen. And this is who our God is. And, and we're living in the shadow of the day of the Lord, friends. Right? Like We live our lives in this day that will come when God's king will come and he will put all things to right. And we're going to walk out today and make decisions this afternoon and tonight and tomorrow in light of that coming day. It is on its way. The king will return. He is not safe, but he is good. And so how can we live our lives in light of who our God is, in light of the day that comes on us and comes on the whole world? And so I want to leave us with, with a picture of, I think, as I was thinking this week, who are we called to be in light of this? And I just had two, two postures that God's people are called to in this world. We are called to be people who are humble and hopeful. This is who we are called. This is what the book of Joel tells me about. What kind of a person am I supposed to be? One who is humble and who is hopeful. Okay, first, we are called to be humble people in light of the day of the Lord, in light of who our God is. People who recognize um, I'm not really good at consistently following God, <laughs> right? Like Jesus said, blessed are all the poor in spirit. It's a humility that says, when I look at God's call on my life and I look inside, I realize I don't actually have what it takes to consistently be the kind of person that God calls me to be. Like I know myself well enough to know I don't have the resources in here to do that consistently. And so what that means, God, I need your spirit. I am poor in my own spirit. I need your spirit to do things for me that I can't do. And so I want to live my life in humility, recognizing, um, but for the grace of God, I could do all sorts of things. And but, you know, the day of the Lord, man, I want, I want to live faithfully. And God, I need you to, to help me with that. Um, and my kids need that, right? Like, I want to live humbly as a parent. I was thinking this week in this passage, like, I want to protect my kids from so much in the world. Um, there's so much in the world. There's always been so much in the world that I want to protect them from. And I was thinking this week, I cannot protect them from themselves. And I can't protect them from me. <laughs> right? I can't do that. Like, and all the stuff that's in the world is all right here in this little family. Like, the potential is all right there. And this is the human condition. And so it calls me to a, a humility, and it calls us to be people who are humble. But not just humble, 
but also hopeful, right? A hope that says, our God's good. He's a really good God. And no matter how hard life is, no matter how hard this world feels, this, the ending's really good. And God is going to restore. We've seen him restore things. And one day he will put all things to right. It ends really, really well. And so I never lose hope. I never move towards despair. I'm humble, but I'm hopeful. And I, I bring those two qualities up because honestly, I look at the church in America in the last five years, and I don't always see a church that's been humble and hopeful. Okay, I see a lot of calling out what's going on out there, and there's a lot to call out, but there's a lot to fight against, right? But it's dangerous when we do that without taking a long, hard look at what's going on in here and in here. And I have seen a church that's not always humble, that is um, self-righteous, that is judgmental, and also not always hopeful. I, I find people who are in despair, people who are so discouraged, people who, uh, the word that came to mind is they catastrophize everything. You know, it's like an event happens, we catastrophize everything these days. And so we're not humble and we're not hopeful. <laughs> We're, we're uh, arrogant, judgmental, and despairing, and that's not the kind of people we want to be in this world. And that's kind of what's happening in the world, right? Everyone's pointing the finger, and, and everyone's kind of just in despair. And I was thinking, gosh, what, how cool would it be for Christians in this world to be known as, gosh, they're, they got some wacky ideas, but they're such humble, hopeful people. Wouldn't that be great? And we fight for goodness in this world, right? There, there are battles to be fought, and we fight them. We pursue truth. We call out things. We pursue justice and righteousness. We celebrate that. We grieve what is broken. But we do that with hope. We do that with joy, knowing that we win. God wins, I should say. And anyone who's willing to return to him gets to experience that. And so this is, this is, I think, the vision that, that the church needs in our time. What does it look like to move into the world and to engage one another as humble, hopeful people, all the while knowing that that day is approaching. So we live with hope. I want to leave you with 1 Corinthians 15, which is a, a whole chapter on the resurrection, the day of the Lord, the coming of the King, and the resurrection and new life. And it ends this way. Therefore, in light of this coming day, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We move into the world with hope, and we labor for goodness, and we know it's not all in vain, because the Lord wins. And so we live with hope. Let's pray. Well, Father, as we, as we live our lives um, in a fallen world and with fallen hearts in light of a coming day where justice and righteousness will reign, man, we want to be people who just bear witness to your kingdom in the world. We want to be people who are humble, who are grateful, who are hopeful, um, who celebrate the good, who speak out against the evil grieve what is broken in the world and inside of us, but who also move towards 
truth and goodness and beauty and justice and righteousness. May we be a people who do that together. Give us a vision for humility and hope in a challenging world, Lord. And would you bring our hearts in alignment with your heart? Will you draw us closer to you, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.